Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. All right, welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. Today, it is, uh, we don't have the normal hosts. Usually, it is me, um, Jackson, and Nick. Nick has obviously been away for the last month with Super League. Jack is MIA today as well because we are talking about something that thankfully has not affected him. We, But this is something that has affected myself and Lisa Bacaris, who joins me today um, to talk to a specialist for who's a hip, shoulder, and knee specialist down. Uh, he's based in Alabama at the uh, University of Alabama Medical Campus. It is Dr. Casp who is um, with us today. So hi, Lisa, and hi, Dr. Kat. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate your time. And excited to to talk talk all about hips with you. <laughs> yeah, of course. My specialty. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm like uh, Garrick said, I'm uh, a hip, knee, and shoulder specialist, but my uh, sort of niche specialty is uh, minimally invasive hip and hip arthroscopy. Um, sort of the director of the hip preservation program here at the UAB Medical Center. Uh, treat a lot of athletes. So I moved here a couple years ago from uh, Vail, Colorado, when I was finishing up some training uh, with some of the some of the elites and as far as the hip world goes. So uh, hopefully, I can shed a little light on uh, this sort of ever-present injury in the uh, high-level athlete world. Yes, we're excited about that. And one, I do want to uh, ask you a quick question about this. So you wrestled at Princeton, is that yes. right? Yes. That's awesome. And um, in wrestling specifically, did you, is there, um, was there a big uh, population of people who would have hip injuries in wrestling specifically? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, it's a uh, it's a sort of any high kind of flexibility, high hip angle kind of uh, act- activity or sport definitely lends itself to hip injuries. You know, back when I was wrestling in the early to mid two thousands, you know, people would get diagnosed with it, but because of the amount of time off that is kind of required, people often just opted to kind of deal with it and not not get it taken care of. You know, it's it's uh while there are high hip flexion activities and motions as far as wrestling goes it's not sort of a repetitive kind of thing you're not running long distances you're not cycling long distances so while it hurts in the moment you can usually kind of worm your way out of it now i would say as techniques have gotten a lot better and recovery's gotten a lot better uh, i think more wrestlers are definitely getting the surgery whereas back then not a lot of people were getting the surgery Got it. Very cool. I just wanted to, you know, let all our listeners know that you are a D1 wrestler too. Oh, perfect. Thanks. Crazy. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So highly successful across uh, multiple disciplines. So yeah, take us through kind of your credentials, take us through schooling, what you got you into even orthopedics to begin with. Yeah. Like, uh, like Lisa was mentioning, uh, I, I, I wrestled in college, wrestled at Princeton university, you know, had a number of injuries that I had to rehab from. Uh, so that sort of got me first interested in kind of a sports medicine, uh, background or sports medicine tilt to it. Uh, always knew I wanted to go to medical school. So, uh, took a couple years off to work and then, uh, went back to medical school at the uh, university of North Carolina, uh, there, uh, sort of helped coach the club wrestling team and also, uh, you know, worked a lot with the orthopedist there, did my orthopedic surgery residency at the university of Virginia. 
uh, also able to take care of uh, a lot of high level athletes there. And then uh, I did uh, a year of uh, additional training in uh, sports medicine uh, and sports medicine surgery at the uh, Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Love it. And for, for our listeners, I, that's where I got my surgery at the Stedman Clinic. And I can thank Dr. Cass because he's the one who uh, uh, hooked me up with my surgeon, Dr. Leslie Vidal. And she uh, she did mention last time in my recent post-op that she owes you um, <laughs> a lot for sending me to her. So <laughs> we're good. You're, you're, you've, you've just kept coming back. <laughs> I just can't get enough of it. <laughs> um. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, so I guess what we want to talk about is we want to talk about hips and specifically hip arthroscopy. Um, both Garrick and I are, are well too familiar with this surgery. Garrick had both, Garrick, when did you have both your hips done? I uh, would have been 2021. 20, and you uh, had, your yeah, hips. August and November. 21. Okay. Yeah. And then I had, Lisa got her fresh, freshly bilaterally done as well. <laughs> yes. Mine were about a year apart. So August, August and August. Um, yeah. Fresh off two weeks post my second hip surgery. And um, yeah, I guess what we want to just talk about a little bit about Aaron is uh, what is, you know, hip arthroscopy and specifically what is FAI or femoral acetabular impingement. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. But yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that and, and how do you actually get it? Sure. Uh Femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI, is sort of an umbrella term for any time that the ball of the of the ball and socket joint that is the hip, which is, a t which is basically attached to your proximal thigh bone, your femur, uh, as you hip flex your hip up, it impinges on the socket. Uh, and that can be from a number of reasons. You know, some people are hyperlax, like, uh, say, dancers or gymnasts. Some people have a little excess bone uh, along their either their ball or their socket. Uh, and some people just have a repetitive kind of injury. Uh, it's either it can be kind of an impingement, a hyper mobility, hyperflexibility, or kind of a repetitive motion issue. And you know just having that extra bone uh, by itself doesn't doesn't mean you're going to have a problem. Uh, but that definitely puts you at risk for it. And the, and the thing that gets pinched in between the ball and the socket when that happens is a, is a structure called the labrum. And it's a sort of uh, gasket or O-ring that goes around the socket that normally uh, is continuous with the cartilage, helps stabilize the hip, kind of creates a suction seal. Uh, but uh, it, it, if it gets pinched, it can tear. And the problem with that is uh, it's very highly innervated, so it can cause a fair amount of pain. Uh, and the, the way this usually shows up uh, is usually not an acute injury. It's usually over time, you start to notice it kind of nags, especially with workouts and the pain. Uh, people think of the hip pain as kind of being out to the side, sort of over their, the side of their hip with that bony ridge out there. But true hip joint pain really uh, sort of manifests as like groin pain, uh, deep kind of aching, gnawing groin pain. And so that's when most people usually uh, usually show up at some point saying, you know, this has been bothering me for a while, but it's getting to the point where it kind of bugs me when I'm doing sort of everyday stuff at this point. Yeah, I know for, for me, um, I remember I had, it's similar as the groin pain. And um, I was like, man, I, I, you know, strained my groin like years ago and it just never heals, never heals, so sore. Uh, and I remember telling actually Jack and Nick that I mean like this just won't go away. Um, 
and then I would occasionally um, have like a stabbing pain in my hip and uh-huh. it wouldn't go away. Then it would go away, but the, the groin pain was persistent. And then um, it just blew up one in a race one day. And then I went to the doctor and he was like, yep, I got referred to an orthope- my orthopedic doc. And he's like, yep, right here. You got this. He's like, yeah, you're yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, pre- previously, people would kind of just write it off as kind of like, oh, this was, uh, you know, I tweaked my groin, I strained my groin or whatever. It wasn't until 2004 that FAI was uh, sort of, the, there's like a, this seminal research paper that said, this impingement is a problem. And this impingement is a real thing that leads to negative hip outcomes down the road. So this is this is a relatively new discovery. And, you know, this is not a new thing that people have been dealing with people have been dealing with you know hundreds of years people usually wrote it off because you know you can just everyday stuff with it it's not sort of crippling or disabling most of the time while you're, while you're just kind of doing everyday stuff but uh, we now that we understand it a little better we have a good understanding of anatomy and uh, what it takes to recover from it it's, it's something that uh, in especially in more active higher level uh, individuals we usually intervene upon at this point because it, it, it annoys you it makes it so you can't do the things you want to do yeah and like you said this is kind of a newer thing that we have that's been um i don't know how to want to say uncovered or, or really researched but it's something that is new and it seems like a lot more people are getting it because we're becoming more aware and the research is is getting there so with that being said what population is generally indicated for something like this uh it can be active individuals uh that are usually somewhere in the realm of uh it can be adolescents like 15 year old athletes all the way up to usually around 40 uh and you know it, it also depends on how active you are and how how you know not just uh chronologically old you are but how physiologically old you are because um you know it can be up older than that but mainly it's the the active individuals between sort of 15 and 40 uh you know mainly just because above that age your your activity just slows down you're not doing as high hip flexion or repetitive activities as you were before and chances are if you haven't had a labrum tear that was symptomatic by then chances are you're not going to get one after that you're not going to suddenly become significantly more active after the age of 40. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm still working on my parents to try to start start like training. <laughs> yeah, but they're well into their sixties, so I don't know what all my uh, chances are on on uh, convincing them of that yet. Um, yeah. Is there? When I guess when should someone consider getting surgery? What are those steps? What do you rule out in front or before you get surgery? And are are there specific things that you try to do to avoid surgery um, before? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, first step is always making the diagnosis. There's a ton of stuff that attaches and is nearby in the hip. Uh, so hip, hip pain, uh, kind of groin pain can come from a whole lot of places. So you kind of need to localize it. Is this coming from the hip joint itself? And you can do that with some exa- some physical exam maneuvers. Uh, and sometimes and oftentimes we sort of do an injection. Uh, an injection can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. By that, I mean, there's usually some numbing medicine in the injection. Uh, which can make you feel better right away. And so you've basically numbed the hip joint up. And so if the problem is coming from inside the hip joint, vis-a-vis the labrum, uh, then it should feel better, a lot better right away. And then there's a steroid component to that to kind of calm down the inflammation in the overall joint. 
And the goal for me for that is to basically calm the inflammation down. Uh, and then I usually put people in a couple of weeks of formal physical therapy, just because even though they might not feel it, their hip mechanics have been off for a while. Uh, they've kind of been running or cycling or swimming or whatever around that hip. So the muscles are kind of firing in a slightly pathologic way. So I usually try and get people's mechanics back a little bit better. So that injection physical therapy tells me a lot. Uh, the injection, the response to the injection has been shown to be highly correlated with how people do after surgery. Uh, so that that's sort of how we hone in on the diagnosis. Uh, An MRI we usually do as well, um, but there can be some false positives in that as well. We usually, uh, the radiologists usually put a little bit of dye in the hip joint uh, to see where that labrum is torn. Uh, but they've been there've been some studies on asymptomatic people. Like basically, you take a hundred people with no hip uh, symptoms at all, and you do that MR arthrogram or that MRI with dye, and somewhere in the sixty to seventy percent range above the age of thirty will have and will have a labrum tear on there. So you really have to uh, make sure that there's an intervenable lesion with surgery. But by that I mean a labrum tear, and you have to prove to yourself and to the patient that that labrum tear is actually causing their symptoms. And I always tell people that, you know, uh, you never have to have this hip surgery, right? It's not going to, it's never going to kill you. It's going to be very annoying, but it's never going to kill you. Um, and so they have to decide, and sometimes I, they don't love it when I kind of put the, put the pressure back on them, but they have to decide that it's worth it to them. Cause I, I lay it out for them. I'm like, look, in the best case scenario, you are back strong, uh, unrestricted return to sports at around four to four and a half months. That's just about as fast as we can do it. People have done everything they possibly can to speed it up. But that's just when the muscles are ready. So, you know, some people aren't ready for that. And some people are saying like, oh, I can't do that right now. I'm sort of entering, you know, my last season of competition or whatever it may be. And then you have, then you have the sort of sports medicine uh, art discussion of them of, uh, you know, sort of season management and what that means. And especially in the college world, you start to get into, uh, do you have medical redshirt? Like, are you, you know, can you qualify for that? And also now there's a whole new wrinkle, which could be an entire podcast in and of itself. There's <laughs> loss of loss of NIL money. <clears throat> that's a whole other thing. That's, oh yeah, that's something that like, you didn't, you didn't think about now, but now I have to have that discussion with these college athletes to be like, look, I'm not going pro with this, but I can't lose that 50, 60, 70, $150,000 this season. I'm just going to muster through. Uh, because I'm going to lose my sponsors if I'm not, if I'm not actively, you know, participating. So it, 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 that's, you know, it's kind of a long answer to, yeah, I try everything to not have surgery, you know, as long as it makes sense for them. What are, what are the risks of not getting the surgery if you do have a labrum pair or a labrum tear with the cam impingement? Yeah, if you have a torn labrum or an impingement that is not addressed, uh, the mechanics of the hip are thrown off, the actual hip joint are thrown off a little bit because that, like I said before, that labrum kind of contributes to hip stability, uh, suction seal of the joint. So it does lead to earlier arthritis uh, on that hip. Um, what that means for everybody is kind of unknown. Uh, you know, it may be, maybe you were going to get hip arthritis 30 years down the road and then that side you get it 15 years down the road. Could be five years but it does lead to earlier joint degeneration is what we found. And Garrick, you have with one of your hips, you have kind of early onset arthritis. Is that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, start, start from the top there, Lisa. I said, uh, with one of your hips, you kind of have some arthritis or cartilage bone contacts now. Is that right? 
Yeah, my left is still pre-arthritic. Um, so it's getting yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. And and the, the ideal patient is, you know, is to be able to intervene before they have a lot of arthritic change. Someone who's in their 60s and 70s who already has some, you know, bad arthritis, that hip's just kind of worn out. And the yes, people show up to my clinic all the time in their late 60s, early 70s. Somebody ordered an MRI and it shows a labrum tear, but also shows, you know, high grade cartilage loss. And I, and I tell those people like, yes, you have a labrum tear, but if I fix that labrum tear, your hip is going to be the same. That labrum is collateral damage from the cartilage loss, from it just sort of being worn out, as opposed to the younger person who has a little bit of cartilage wear, but, you know, their primary pathology or primary driver of their symptoms is the labrum tear. And do you, so is there, um, I guess like with those people that are in like the sixties and stuff that come in with a labrum tear and cartilage damage, are those people who eventually will probably be looking at like a full hip replacement? Yeah. Yeah. Usually those people sort of lend themselves better towards a hip replacement. There's some new data that says, you know, degenerative hip arthroscopies do okay. Uh, but the recovery for a hip arthroscopy is significantly harder and longer than for a hip replacement. You know, a hip replacement for people that have a true arthritic hip, you're allowed to put as much weight on as you want to right away. Uh, some people say you don't even need much therapy just because, you know, it, it feels so good and you're replacing the whole joint. You know, there are a lot of other risks. It's a bigger open surgery, but the actual recovery itself uh, is is significantly easier than a, than a hip arthroscopy. Do people, and now this is my like random train of thought, now do people, do any athletes get like full hip replacements? And like return to sport at a high level. Uh, some do. Andy Murray, I don't know if you remember the the ten, the British tennis player had uh, a, a hip resurfacing, which is essentially they've replaced part of the socket and part of the ball. So he essentially has a hip replacement, and he's playing at high level high level tennis. Um, <clears throat> for full hip replacements, there I'm sure there are some, but uh, you know most people are not going to replace uh, a very young person's hip while they're still in their career just because of the risks associated with it. And hip replacement, you know, that's not sort of a one and done procedure either. You're kind of replacing the ball and socket cartilage, which is sort of a living remodeling thing inside your body with metal or ceramic on plastic. And that wears down. So just like any good set of tires, it lasts for however many miles you put on it. So at best uh, with a young person with a hip replacement, it's going to last 15 years before they have to ever redo. So if you get it done at 40, you're looking at two or three revisions or redos. And every time you have one of those is bigger surgery, you lose a little bit more bone. And so, yeah, it's not sort of a, the hip replacement or the joint replacement in general. It's not sort of this <clears throat> panacea cure-all for, for problems. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to avoid one of those in my future. <laughs> um, how successful is the, is the surgery and, um, what would be deemed a success with the surgery as well? Um, hip arthroscopy overall, you know, that we've, we've done a lot of studies on a high level sort of professional athletes return to the same level of sport. Uh, this is in professional, primarily professional football, like professional soccer athletes uh, is in the high eighties to low nineties percent range. And that's uh, as good as pretty much any surgery. Cause as you, as you can imagine, a professional athlete taking any more than three months off, you're going to have some just some sort of wane and some sort of loss. So the ability to return is very high. And what I tell my patients is, look, you know, you have no real restrictions once you've recovered. And my goal is to get you back doing everything you want to do. 
whether that's just sort of, you know, playing doubles tennis on Saturdays or playing back in the NFL, it's, uh, it's really up to you and what you, what you, what demands you want to put on the hip. Yeah, I, I feel that <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I try to tell, so I work in prosthetics and I, I try to tell my patients something similar to that. Obviously they're, none of them are really athletes. Mm -hmm. um but when they always ask me like what's successful like what what do we do here i'm like well if i can bring you back to your activity level prior to your amputation then i would deem that as a success so i think that's a good way of looking at it um like this and obviously this is quite the surgery and you're dealing with like high level athletes who are really using um yeah. But some are not, but some are also not. I mean, some are people like, uh, you know, the 37 year old mom who just really bugs her at night and she can't jog and she can't do Pilates and yoga. And, and my goal is just to give her a pain-free hip and those people are super happy. Yeah. You know, it's also, it's a recovery as you, as you guys both know, it's, it's a commitment, but uh, yeah. Yeah, my goal is to get you pain-free and back to your new envelope of function, whatever that is. And what? Oh, go ahead, Lisa. I was just going to talk a little bit about recovery and what that specifically looks like um, mm -hmm. from your standpoint. Um, I know at least for me, and I don't know how often you had follow-up, uh, post-op follow-up with your uh, doctor. What does that look like with your um, patients post-surgery? What are you specifically looking for in post-op appointments? And kind of what's that timeline? What's your goal to say like, hey, at this time that's when i think you're going to be you know 100 percent or 99 percent you know recovered sure yeah, that's a great question you know every every surgeon's protocol is a little bit different um <clears throat> and uh there's not a there's not that much science behind uh what we do um there's a couple things that you know everybody is pretty much on board with uh, for me specifically, and I would say most surgeons, most surgeons are uh, limiting weight bearing for the first, usually around four weeks. Uh, so for me, it's 50% weight bearing on that leg for four weeks, basically just you're, you're crutching, you got, you're double crutching it uh, everywhere, but you can put some weight on that leg for four weeks. Uh, no excessive hip flexion or extension, just because you want everything to heal. Um, because when you repair that labrum back up onto the socket rim, you're just holding it there with suture and you're waiting for that suture to hold until your body heals it and scars it in. Uh, I don't uh, use a, a brace. Uh, that's There hasn't been a great evidence that it definitely does something. Uh, uh, but if logistically easily, I would, because it definitely protects the hip a little bit more. I just, the, the practice setting at the university I am, there's not a good way for me to get somebody fit for the brace because people are coming from all over kind of thing. And the brace people are kind of uh, in and out. So it's just logistically, I can't do it. <clears throat> the, the kind of spiel I give people for post-op is 2% weight bearing for the first four weeks. I start you in therapy within a week. Um, it usually takes about three or four weeks after you come off crutches to get your gait back. So, so somebody seeing you across the room wouldn't know you had surgery. You might still feel it, but they wouldn't know. So that's four weeks plus four weeks. You're at two months already right there. At around the three month mark, everyday stuff feels great. Flat ground walking, going up and down stairs, long trips to the grocery store. And that's when I tell people the three month between the three month and that five month when you're full recovery, full unrestricted activity, that's where people diverge a lot. Some people <clears throat> come back in at four months because they did too much. They went and rode a horse. They went trail running when they felt they thought they thought they felt really good, and they just get really sore. 
So it, it really depends. Uh, most people I'd say around the four and a half month mark are kind of pushing the envelope and feeling pretty good. Occasionally they need a touch up like a, a short course of prescription anti-inflammatories. Some people need a hip flexor injection just because their mechanics are still coming back. Uh, but that that sort of uh, four and a half, five months to full unrestricted recovery is uh, and return to high level stuff uh, is is, is kind of, I don't, don't want to say set in stone, but is as, as, as accelerated as we've gotten it so far with the sort of rehab sciences. And people that are not trying to get back to high level stuff, you know, just want to get back to golf or, you know, recreational swimming, maybe they'll advance at the three and a half, four month mark just because they're not putting as many demands on there. How common, someone who gets one side done, how common is it that they're going to have to get the other side done as well? Uh, yeah, uh, it's more common than you think. The Again, I, I go back to sort of the bigger research studies say it's only, oh, it's only in the 20 to 30% range. I would say that's it's much higher based on, uh, you know, everybody's anecdotal experience. Uh, just because if, if you have the bony morphology and the symptoms on one side chances and you're going back to high level sport chances are you're going to develop on the other side but the study that actually studied it someone actually took the time to look at it only looked at it somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent range but I, I would i would wager especially in athletes it's significantly higher and what's the protocol for getting both of them done uh for you guys uh, I usually tell people that they have to wait somewhere between 10 and 12 weeks in between just because you're taking a recently operated upon hip and then transferring all the weight kind of back onto it. So you want to make sure that it's <clears throat> kind of back online as much as it can be. Some people will accelerate it to about six weeks, but I, I would say your most people, their muscles and their abductors and all that stuff are just not quite there to bear the brunt of a modified weight bearing on that side yet. Okay. Yeah, that was a similar advice that I got. And I was like, I really just want to do both of these and just <laughs> get them done. Yeah. People, people want to, and people try, I've, I've almost caved and done simultaneous, but then I tell them like, look, you're going to be in a wheelchair. Like that's just, it's, and that that'll slow your recovery overall. And I, and I told them, I, I guarantee it would be slower to do it that way than to stage it just because if you're totally sedentary, you're not using either side really, then it's just, you're not, your muscles are going to atrophy and you're not going to do well. What's the, is there, do you ever go back in with someone who's had the arthroscopy, hip arthroscopy and have to like fix it or redo it? Yeah. Redone? Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a, you know, a revision hip arthroscopy is, is becoming more and more popular as people get the primary done. Uh, there's usually for a couple of reasons. The number one reason is because there's still some bony impingement. Uh, even though you're sort of shaving it down, you're looking at it in surgery and you're oftentimes using uh, intraoperative x-ray or intraoperative fluoroscopy to like take x-rays and reshape the head. Sometimes there's a, a portion that still impinges. <clears throat> so you can always re-tear. Um, so I've done, a, a, you know, a number of redos or revisions for a, a number of reasons, but the number one reason is just there's some residual bony impingement there. Um, you know, anchors can break, uh, some people, the, the hip capsule or the lining of the joint doesn't heal appropriately for whatever reason. And that can cause some residual hip pain. Um, but yeah, a, a redo or revision hip arthroscopy is always a little tricky because there's always, there's a lot of scar in there and you never know if it's this, if the scar just happened because this, they had surgery before, or if, or if the scar is pathologic. So you're going to kind of have to take care of everything you see that is not normal. So you take down all the scar, 
uh, redo the redo the labrum repair, uh, aggressively take out a little bit more bone so it doesn't impinge anymore. And then <clears throat> a second surgery, especially if it's within a year, on that same hip, uh, often is it's another insult to the muscles, and they just don't like that. So people's second recovery, they never like it nearly as much. And I, I try to tell people that on the front end, like, look, you're going to go slower. You just are. And it's going to, it's going to feel worse and you're going to think something's wrong. Um, and, you know, sometimes they listen and sometimes they call back like a bunch of times and they're like, look, there's something weird in my glute. It just doesn't feel right. And then just have to, you know, sort of encourage them and cheerlead them along. Well, as athletes, we're all different. We're the exception. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh uh Aaron with my new with my recent hip um then my both hip surgeries being like a year apart mm. one thing that they're having me take uh now is Lasartan Lasartan did I say that right yeah it's yeah. like a blood pressure medication and they explained it to me that it's there's some research that shows that it's helping decrease the amount of scar tissue built up um so I was like yeah absolutely I'll, I'll take that and give it a shot for my 30 30 days yeah. Uh, I, is there, and so that was different from my first hip surgery. So I just want to say, is there any other new research that is specifically being looked at and that you're involved with, or that you're kind of excited to see if it comes out, anything shakes out from it? Yeah, we're doing uh, a lot of studies, you know, to start just to touch on that a little bit, you know, the Losartan, it's a, it's a blood pressure, traditionally a blood pressure medicine, but it also has the uh, added benefit of being uh this uh, what's called a tgf beta inhibitor that's basically a signaling uh molecule towards fibroblasts which cause scar and so adhesions and scarring within the hip joint is something we try and avoid so yes we put people on this low dose of uh, blood pressure medication with the hopes you know there's good animal studies that show it decreases scar formation and, and adhesion formation uh other sort of avenues that we're looking at we're trying to find ways to encourage healing and encourage uh, and uh, sort of increase the return of muscles, especially quads and abductors. <clears throat> so some people are, there's a, there's a thing called a BFR or blood flow restriction therapy, uh, which a lot of people use for knee surgery uh, that we're sort of trying to adapt to work on the quad, basically quad and abductors, if you can. And what that does is basically uh, essentially put a low pressure blood pressure cuff around your around your quad muscle, and you do very minimal exercise, but because you're kind of starving it of blood, it feels like it has done a tremendous amount of exercise. So basically, you can stimulate basically hypertrophy and growth, or uh, prevent loss of muscle with minimal activity on the on the joint. So you don't have to do very much. Uh, and the muscle feels like it's done a tremendous amount. So we're, we're starting to look into some research uh, about uh, blood flow restriction therapy uh, as far as, you know, regaining and keeping your quad and your leg muscles after a hip arthroscopy surgery. It's a little trickier to do with the muscles around the hip because you can't really, you know, put a blood pressure squeezer above that. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, are, we are hopeful that some quad effects, you know, just that sort of hypertrophy effect overall, uh, will in uh, those growth mediators and uh, that your body releases will lead lend itself to not losing as much abductor and glute muscles as well. That would be cool. Yeah. 
you know, there's, you know, there's the old adage, if you want to grow muscle everywhere, work your legs, right? Just because the the testosterone and the muscle growth mediators that are released whenever you work your quads and your hamstrings, which are the biggest muscles in your body, uh, whenever those get worked, it sort of allows and leads to a little bit more muscle growth and maintenance in the rest of your body as well. I say I've never, I've never heard that, but now I feel like I should never do upper body and only do squats and Just squats. <laughs> squats is all you need. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll so, have math biceps. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lisa, did you say that you had uh psoas lengthening or piriformis lengthening? Psoas lengthening. Um so Dr. Vidal did psoas lengthening on both my left and right hips um in, in conjunction with the surgery. And I don't know. All I know is after I got my right hip done last year and she linked, you know, like kind of feathered my psoas, um, I, I always felt like my other psoas was tighter. And so going to that surgery, I was like, will you please do that? To this, please? <laughs> <laughs> this is me bargaining as we're like going into, into surgery. Into surgery. I yeah, asked her if she could. Yeah. That's always <laughs> she, what you like. That's what you like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also had, I like crashed my bike on my left hip, like really bad in 2015 and had this huge hematoma, had to get like drained okay. um, two times. And I swear I, I saw, she found a, um, uh, what's it called? She like a contusion on my like lateral labrum, which mm -hmm. she's like, what? it's probably from a crash a long time ago. It's been healing itself. I'm like, Oh, it's probably from that. But before mm -hmm. surgery, I have this huge, like, it's not attractive, but like big scar tissue circle on my thigh. Mm -hmm. And I was going to surgery. I asked Dr. Vidal, I was like, can you think you could just like take that out? Like, can you take the scar tissue out? But she, she said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will, the, the psoas tendon lives right on top of the labrum and then continues right on top of the hip joint capsule as it goes to where it, where it attaches down on the, down on the, the femur, the thigh bone. So uh, some people will advocate for a, you know, a psoas tendon partial lengthening, especially if uh, you can see tearing right below where that psoas tendon crosses over. And sometimes there's a little divot in the, the socket where that psoas tendon has been kind of rubbing for a long period of time. So if there's a combination of a tear and or a, <clears throat> a lot of bruising of the labrum and that sort of what I call a psoas gutter or psoas divot in the, in the socket, and clearly that so as and, and you look at the whole clinical picture of the the person too right if they're a very kind of tight athlete kind of person um and you think it's partially pathologic you can do a partial so as tendon release you're not releasing the whole thing and letting it fly you're sort of releasing part of the tendon and kind of feathering it so it'll kind of spread out and then kind of heal in in a, a, a slightly loosened less tight area so it goes around the hip it still functions just fine some people have a little bit of sub subjective hip flexion weakness for the first couple months uh, but it almost always comes, it always comes back and you can get back to doing whatever you want. Yeah. I swear it made my, my right hip feel great. I was like, this feels so loose over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Garrick, what other questions do you have? Do you have any other questions? Um, no, I, I think that that was pretty good. Uh, I know we told you to be more conversational based, but I think we just have so many questions. Yeah. That it, yeah. It just came off like that. Uh, I think most people can probably benefit from uh, so as lengthening since we're always sitting down yes. <laughs> in chairs and we're probably all all tight in the hips. So, yeah, no, I agree. Yes, I mean, 
that's that's a lot of people's complaint i don't know if that was you guys experience but like going from sitting to standing or sitting in a car for a long period of time definitely worsened uh worsens a lot of people's sort of labrum tear and hip impingement symptoms and we're definitely more sedentary than we need to be um lisa were were you uh were your symptoms more after like a long like <clears throat> long ride because you're sort of sitting flexed over or was it kind of everything yeah, I, both my hips are a little different. Uh, my right hip, it's, I mean, it started with a lateral glute pain that, um, you know, early we diagnosed as like a uh, media glute med tendon kind of tear strained type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And it just lots of dysfunction in that right lateral glute. And then I actually had a lot of, um, when I was cycling, right medial knee pain, mm -hmm. um, which ended up just like we had an MRI on my right knee. We kind of like looked at everything and it was like, your knee looks pristine. It looks fantastic. Um, and then right kind of right after that, I started getting that deep achy achiness feeling in my groin. Mm -hmm. So it kind of progressed for me from that lateral hip to knee to, to groin pain. Um, and then with, and so that was, and I don't remember it like on setting after any specific activity or any specific, um, like duration of activity, but with my left hip, uh, started bothering me. Actually, I was just on a five day, like gravel trip, uh, for mm. one of my sponsors and we just rode gravel bikes five days in a row. Um, and I did a long run the day after. And I just remember feeling like, Ooh, something's not right in my glute. And then kind of stemming from there, I tried to like walk or run a couple more times later that week. And glute was not having it. Um, so I just kind of went to swimming and biking and after I would say like probably three or four weeks of, of not running and trying to get back to running. Um, that's kind of when I started getting this deep achy feeling in my groin again on my left side. And that's kind of when I was like, no, <laughs> not, again. not again. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> but okay. for me, it was such an easy decision. I was like, um, right before we had a 70.3 in Oregon, um, mm -hmm. in like mid July, I got an MRI earlier that week. I talked to Dr. Vidal on Wednesday before the week, the race. And she's like, well, yeah, like you've, you, you kind of know you can have, you know, we can try to PT, you can try to wait. I did the race and I called her on Monday and I was like, let's schedule surgery. <laughs> like <laughs> I know this worked last time. My right hip recovered really well. Um, so it's, it's just something where I'm, I know that there's a problem and I don't know if it's like more of like a mental thing on top of it as well, where I was just like, I don't want this to continue to irritate me, um, knowing that there's something I can do that worked well in the past. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, I, and I will say you are like the ideal patient that everyone would want, right? Like thin, very strong, recovers well, good muscular functional reserve. So Yeah. That's uh, that's kind of a no brainer. If you did well the first time, you're probably gonna soar again. And 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 I will say most patients and most people think that their second side, just because they knew knew what was going to happen, what to expect going in, it was just uh, much more in cruise control the second time. Yeah. Before the before the call, I was chatting with Garrick, and I was like, I I need to. I should probably pump the brakes a little because I know I'm way less. Um, concerned about this side and mm -hmm. I should be like a little more concerned because I'm like all right let's go we're getting in the pool we're moving yeah. with my right side I was a little more um not not kind of as in big of a rush so I do think I need that reminder sometimes to <laughs> I need to pump the brakes for myself yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I, I uh, usually tell people like, look, let's do this once and let's do it right. So especially when people are trying to like bargain with me before surgery even happens, like, oh, I've got a race, you know, four months out. Do you think I'm going to be ready? And so stuff like that. And I'm just like, look, I'll, I'll, I'll sign the medical waiver paper and you'll get, you'll get your, you know, entry fee back, but like, don't, don't push it because you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Um, hey, quick, quick, uh, little, I don't know. I'm so bad at those things. Little turnaround change of topic. Um, I just want to, I, I think this is pretty cool because of some of your experiences. So you are, do you still travel with the U S ski and snowboard team? Yeah. Yeah. I travel every year. Uh, you know, I'm part of the medical pool that takes care of them. So <clears throat> usually end up going to, you know, they're because they're in Europe all season, like from basically October to end of March. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a group of us that take care of them and travel with them. Cause you can't have like one physician embedded in there for six to eight months. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, uh, this past year in December went to the Italian Alps was there for a, and there's a number of teams that are under us ski and snowboard. And so I was traveling the past two years. I've traveled with the slalom team. Um, yeah, I was in Croatia the year before. And then last year is in, uh, the Italian Alps. So that's, that's a, that's a cool, fun thing to do. That is, that does sound kind of fun and a little bit of change of pace from probably Birmingham, Alabama. A little bit, just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I but, think it's uh, funny how you're sitting in Birmingham, Alabama, wearing a U.S. ski and snowboard shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We went out to, we went out to like grab tacos with my kids and people were like staring at me like, what are you doing? Like wearing the shirt. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's great. And, uh, one of the, one of the trickiest parts of that, about that is, you know, trying not to get hurt myself while I'm there, you know, just, because obviously it's not like recreational skiing. I'm on skis to during the event to cover it, but like they make those uh, those downhill runs and those slalom runs as icy and fast as possible. So that's 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 yeah. If you get, if you if you're one if you're the one of the docs that gets hurt, you usually don't get asked to asked to come back. <laughs> like, um, and then you mentioned obviously being a dad, and you have two two young boys at home. Mm -hmm. um, how do you balance? I know you're involved. I feel like you're constantly involved in like research. You're at some of the UAB sporting events. Um, obviously you have your full-time gig as a surgeon. Um, how do you balance, how do you balance it all? And how do you stay active? Yeah, I, uh, it's a busy schedule. Uh, but I, I try, I'm a creature of habit. Um, and so I like to, I like pretty much every week to look about the same. And then, and usually I can mold it to be about that. Um, staying active is always tricky. You know, my, my kids, I usually only get to see my kids from probably around 5 PM to 8 PM most days. <clears throat> so I, I, I don't, well, that, that's, uh, I'm not doing anything besides hanging out and doing family time then. So I'm not working out then. And then, you know, full day of surgery or clinic or whatever. So I usually end up just working, <laughs> working out from five to six in the morning. So that means I get up 4.30 most days and it's a priority thing, right? Like uh, at this point, my kids are five and three. Uh, they're only little for so long. So I've decided that uh, sleep is one of those things I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of. And I don't mind it too much. Um, and then uh, I, I, you know, I usually have one evening thing a week, whether that's a sporting event I have to cover or sort of a, an academic meeting uh, that, uh has to be in the evening or something like that so that's 
that's that's usually how I like to keep my schedule going. Um, you know, there's always a wrench that gets thrown into it, and uh, it's college football season, so I I go to I go to half the away games. So that's a we leave on Friday, games on Saturday, get back at like two in the morning on Saturday night, Sunday morning. So uh, I couldn't do it without uh, without my wife, obviously. Um, you know, she uh, keeps me in line, threatens divorce every once in a while. So that's 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 really how it happens, to be honest with you. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, <laughs> and then I, I would say this, that, you know, an hour a day is probably enough time to train for a triathlon. So I think you should start picking out some races uh, yeah. coming up here. <laughs> I will say as a former college wrestler, I'm a bu- built a little bit like a fire hydrant. So the swim is really tricky for me. <laughs> it's all about body position, right, Garrick? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think um, uh, maybe after seeing all, all the runners come through your clinic, you might think differently. Of yeah, I also, I also usually have a rule. I've broken it once in the past 10 years. I don't pay to run. So I, uh, I've, I've done one 5k. Everybody else tells me like, Oh, I'll do a 5k with me. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't pay to wake up early and run. I can, I can do that for free anytime I want. <laughs> so a valid point. Valid point. <laughs> um, and then I guess one last question for you. And okay. this is my, I wish in another life. Okay. So <clears throat> I just ordered one of those paint by numbers thing. Have you guys ever done those paint by numbers? Yeah, of course. And I would say that I'd probably be the worst surgeon known to man because my like fine motor movement is so awful. I, I might, I wanted to bring that up because I was, trying to, this is what I'm doing to entertain myself during this hip recovery is working on these Anybody damn numbers. By numbers. <laughs> um, but as, as a surgeon, what is your actual, like, what's your favorite surgery to do? Is it hip arthroscopy or do you have like you know, uh, like I, there's a couple of them. I, I, I do like hip arthroscopy. Um, it's it, there, not a lot of people do it. You know, it's not, not something that everybody does because it, it takes this very specific, uh, skill set. Uh, there's a steep learning curve and teasing out, you know, what is going on with the patients. Yeah. You, you actually have to, you know, a lot of orthopedic surgeons are sort of go, go, go. They don't necessarily want to sit and like listen to what actually is bothering people. And then there's some diagnostic injection. So it's a lot of feeling out. Uh, I think I do, you know, I, I really enjoy, I do enjoy hip arthroscopy a lot. Uh, I enjoy doing, you know, some of your bread and butter, sports medicine, ACL reconstruction, shoulder dislocation type surgeries as well. Um, and that's, that's kind of the beauty of sports medicine, even though I sort of focus and emphasize on hip uh, sports medicine, I kind of deal with all the joints and, do a little bit of everything, which is, uh, sort of feeds my, uh, my, my, my OCD as well as my ADHD. So I can, I can keep, keep, keep moving, jumping from thing to thing to thing. So I, I, that's something I really enjoy. That's awesome. And if someone in the greater Birmingham area, or I guess people can like come and fly to see you if they want to see you because they have, uh, something that's bothering them, how do they get in contact with you? Where, do, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, uh, my, uh, if you just Google my name, Aaron Casp, it, it takes you to the, the UAB page and, and our appointment line. Um, uh, we, we have also have online appointments, uh, or you can just call, uh, our appointment line. It's, uh, 205-930-8339. And then, uh, you can make an appointment, but really just the easiest way is probably to go through our, our Google landing page. And then, uh, I'm happy to see you anytime. 
Awesome. And uh, where can they find you on Instagram? They can find <laughs> you can post me. Some at... cool, you post <laughs> some cool videos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, they can always find me and see a little bit of what I'm doing and a little bit of what uh, the sports medicine surgeon's life is like as it's at CASP, C-A-S-P underscore sports med. Yeah. There's a couple of videos on there that went like, you know, they were viral. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got a couple million views on one of them. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to retire and be an influencer soon. So watch out. That's what, that's what we're all trying to do at this point. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> Garrick, you got anything else? Uh, no, I'm just flipping through your account now to look at. It looks like you got some pretty <laughs> cool stuff on there, like yeah. actual videos of yeah. Hip or, or yeah, yeah. I try, I try, and I try and keep it interesting. Try and keep it sort of relevant, and I'll I'll dabble in the the occasional sort of uh, TikTok esque reel, but mainly it's, <laughs> it's, it's sports sports medicine all the way. Yes, that's awesome. I I mean yeah. I love seeing that type of stuff um and and appreciate it but yeah we really appreciate your time and i know you're this is you're one of the busiest people in the world uh so we appreciate your time and coming on to chat with us and um yeah looking forward to hopefully not seeing one of you guys anytime <laughs> soon in that standpoint but when once you come out to colorado uh let us know or let definitely, me know. Will. definitely <laughs> will good luck with this uh recovery lisa and great to meet you Garrick. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. This was awesome. Of course. Thanks, guys. I got ish to do. Flying through the sky in my parachute. Dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise. On a one-man mission trying to see it through.